Okay, Sarah, are you ready? I am. I'm ready when you're ready, Jane. Okay, great. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to another Speaking Of. Uh, hi, Sarah. How are you doing today? It's been a while since we've done our Speaking Of series. Hi, Jane. I know. You know, it does feel that way after taking a break in May, but it's good to be back. And what great timing. Today is the summer solstice. What a great day to be talking about local foods. It sure is. I love that we're talking about this on the first day of summer. It seems very fitting. Uh, before we dive in, let's just do some of our, you know, quick refresher of speaking of. So for those of you just joining us today for the first time, welcome. For those of you returning, welcome back. We're so glad to have all of you with us. Uh, speaking of conversations are really meant to be casual, informative, interactive. So you're not going to see any slides today or charts, nothing like that. Uh, but we will have plenty of opportunity for everyone joining in to take part in that conversation. That's right. And though we've had some good luck lately tech-wise, as we all know, Zoom can sometimes be a little unpredictable. So if for any reason one of us freezes or cuts out, just know we'll be right back on the call. And throughout this conversation, we'll be inviting those of you joining in to weigh in every so often in our Q&A box. In fact, I have a question for you, Jane, that we could really ask everyone. What do you think? Yeah, let's do it. What's your question, Sarah? Do you have a favorite local food item that you look for each summer? Is there something special you are waiting to see turn up or turn up at the farmer's market? Good one. <laughs> uh, well, as we have, so yeah, anyone that's interested, please feel free to put uh, your favorite food in the Q&A or chat there. I guess in the meantime, I'll share what mine is, which I think is very, very Iowan. Uh, I will say probably sweet corn, you know, what we're about to be seeing in the next month or two. It's just such a wonderful thing to look forward to. What about you, Sarah? Well, mine is also very Iowan. Um, you know, I often tell people that Iowa made me a fan of melons. I used to think that they were just mushy or flavorless, flavorless but what I learned when I moved here is that just because they don't Trans, that's just because they don't transport well as fruit, you know, but a perfectly ripe local muscatine melon is a revelation. And, you know, when we talked about this as a potential discussion topic, it was based on the benefits we know local foods have from a climate and resource management perspective, which we are definitely going to talk about. But I have to say one of the other benefits I've come to really love is the way eating locally leads to eating seasonally. And that in turn gives you something to always be looking forward to, like my melons and your sweet corn. Yeah, that is so true. If you're eating locally, you're really following the seasons, you know. Now I see uh, one other one in here, local honey. Yes, that's a great example. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Okay, well, throughout this conversation, if you have further additions or questions, feel free to pop those into the Q&A or the chat box and we can address those. Uh, so, you know, if we're looking at following the seasons, right around, you know, springtime is when we start to look for uh, asparagus when the market opens. And then as the season continues on through, we've got the melons, we've got the sweet corn, our two favorites, apparently. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, there are so many other benefits to local food. And I'll say, you know, as the recycling coordinator being based out at the landfill, um, we always like to think of everything from a resource management perspective. And when we think about um, local food, one of the things I really appreciate is that we oftentimes see less packaging, um, you know, from the farmer to the consumer, all the steps along the way, because it's not traveling that far. There's oftentimes not a need for as robust of packaging such as clamshell containers, which we oftentimes hear a lot about, 
I talk about them a lot. I talk to the community about clamshell containers a lot. It's a big concern. So oftentimes we can, you know, eliminate a lot of that packaging and what they are using is typically a lot of reusable or durable items. Ooh, yes, reuse, one of our favorite things. You were right. You know, a crate containing vegetables trucked in from California is far less likely to be sent back to repack, be repacked. We've all seen the stacks of cardboard boxes that are smashed flat and sent off to recycling. And recycling's good, but reuse, as we know, is even better and uses less energy and less resources. So at the market each week, what you see are local growers emptying crates that they can then take back to their farms to pack up again. And that's a great advantage, you know. And there are also vendors who will do things like take back egg cartons. When I was in the market just a couple of weeks ago, a vendor uh, gently asked if I wouldn't mind bringing the berry boxes back. I was happy to do so. There are many great opportunities for reuse with local foods. Definitely. Yeah, I agree. Well, since I've shared the landfill resource management perspective, I'm curious, Sarah, what would be your climate perspective on that? Well, it's a little complicated, but I have to say I would go with reduced transportation emissions. First and foremost, there are emission savings from not having food shipped or trucked or both from halfway around the world. You know, as we both know, the average food item travels about 1500 miles to reach the grocery store in the U.S., it is a very different story emissions wise when something only has to travel 20 miles say instead. That said, in terms of people coming to the market or out to a farm to pick up some produce, those individual emissions calculations can get a little more complicated depending on how far you're driving and whether or not you're replacing a trip to the supermarket. And you know, it's also worth saying that transportation really only makes up about five to 10% of the local emissions associated with food. What you eat and how it is grown has a much bigger impact, but it is important to recognize these aren't either or climate choices. Either you eat local or you eat organic or you eat a plant-based diet. You know, too often, I know, Jane, you and I talk about this a lot, that climate actions get talked about that way. The suggestion being, if you aren't doing the biggest impact thing, it isn't worth doing at all. And I think that way of thinking about these things is just bonkers, honestly. Why not think about them as a bundle of options that you can add together to multiply the benefits instead? We all have to start somewhere, and there's no reason you can't do more than one thing. Many, many people do. Yeah, I like the term bundle of options there. It really gets back to the good, better, best, which adds that flexibility in, and you know, it works with your lifestyle. Yeah. Um, I think that's also, it's important to mention with local food, as we have talked about with other speaking of topics, that it's complicated, right? And it's good to be aware of that as we go through this discussion. Uh, I'll say, though, another thing that I really enjoy about local foods, uh, something that presents itself usually as more of an option than what we see maybe with the conventional food system, is that there are a lot of other options for uh, getting that food and doing it in a manner that is through alternative transportation options, right? So walk, bike, bus, those types of things. Um, another really cool example of that locally is something that happened last month in May. So the Move Naturally to the Market program in Iowa City, which gives uh, $2 vouchers to those market attendees who either bike or walk to the market, which I think is a really cool program. Oh yeah, as part of Bike Month, such fun and such great people organizing it. 
But you know, this discussion of being aware of some of the complications makes me think about something else you and I have discussed, and that's being mindful of how we can be moving toward a better food system for everyone and not just opting out of a less optimal system personally. As we know, there are all kinds of things that are problematic about the conventional food system, not just how far food is transported, but labor abuses, chemical use, inefficiencies that result in food waste, you name it. And sometimes, not always, but sometimes, because the larger system can feel overwhelming and icky, there's this temptation to just do what feels best for you and just not think about the rest. But you know, ultimately, what we really want to be doing is thinking about the food practices that are better for everyone, local farmers, other consumers, the community as a whole, and really work toward building a better system. Yeah. You know, Sarah, I can really empathize with that. Uh, in participating in the conventional food system myself, uh, especially when, let's say, local food is not quite as accessible, if we think of months like January or February, right in the middle of winter, uh, I definitely thought I was making a wiser, more sustainable choice by purchasing or opting into those certified organic products, really no matter how far that produce has traveled to get to the store that I'm shopping at. Well, you know, I would argue you are still making a better choice to purchase organic in that context. A local choice isn't always available. And, you know, you're right. We all do participate in the conventional food system to some degree. But what we're really talking about here is the idea that we always come back to how to take our individual actions and scale them up so they become systemic solutions. It's the good, better, best idea that you referred to easily or earlier. It's good to purchase local foods at the farmer's market, but what we need to recognize is that a rainy Saturday can really throw off how much a grower makes at the market even though the amount of labor to get there is the same, raise, rain or shine. You know, imagine if your paycheck or mine went up or down depending on the weather. So a better option for the growers is often for us to get a CSA subscription, which stands for Community Supported Agriculture, and that provides a guaranteed income to a farmer. You know, and even better than that is supporting programs that connect local farmers to large scale buyers like schools and hospitals that enable more people to access those foods while also providing better market opportunities for the growers who then hopefully can provide better wages and conditions for the farm workers assisting them. Yeah, I really like that, Sarah. It's really a healthier economic system if we're increasing access all around in our community. And one of the things that I love about Iowa City and living in Iowa City is that we already have a lot of great groups that are engaged with this issue. They're working towards some of those larger scale solutions. Uh, to name a few, Grow Johnson County, Fields of Family, they're doing great things like connecting local growers to those wholesale purchasers. And also, like we said, really just increasing access to local foods for larger segments of the community as well. So true, so true. You know, they really are local food heroes. And in fact, Field to Family actually just successfully applied for one of our climate action grants to do things this year, like translate the materials into other languages and provide farmer's market vouchers to food insecure households. You know, and we've really just scratched the surface about the benefits of local food so far. There are so many great reasons to engage with this issue and work toward a better food system. I have some things I wanna say about how it plays into resilience too. But before I do, you know, we always have such savvy folks listening in. 
why don't we pause here and just ask what other benefits come to mind for them when they think about local foods? Okay, I will monitor the Q&A box there, Sarah. Well, considering today is like a Monday, maybe we, maybe we are just not quite as talkative today, which is okay. I see we've gotten one coming in talking about local community garden programming, and certainly we're going to talk about that in our discussion. Yeah. <laughs> like I said, very savvy listeners, you know, um, and Ursula points out in her comment that we often talk about the regional farmers, but teaching people how to garden has more implications than just climate action or recycling, which is very true. It can address things like food insecurity, right? Or preserving the food traditions of places you've come from. That can be so important to our immigrant and refugee community members, you know, to be able to eat the things that they remember from home. You know, the same way, I'm sure Jane, your love of peaches and cream corn comes from having grown up in the Midwest, right? It is very true. I am an Iowa girl at heart. <laughs> Yeah. Okay. We've got a few other ones coming in here as well. So supporting local farmers. And I think Joan's saying specifically organic. And then Ursula also said community building. Absolutely. So many great benefits. You know, thank you for putting things in the Q&A that make me sound right. We really do have smart folks listening in. Yes, we do. So Sarah, I'm uh, curious, what were you going to say earlier about resilience? Well, you know, it really boils down to the idea that a robust local food system is also a resilient local food system. The further out our food has to travel, the more vulnerable it is to disruptions along the way. If there's a problem at the port or with the freight carrier, if there's a power outage at a distribution center in another state, you name it, there are any number of logistical hiccups that can cause problems. You know, a food manager I once worked with told me that if deliveries can't be made, it only takes about three days for grocery store shelves to start having bare spots. When he said that to me way back then, that seemed hard to imagine. But you know, having experienced supply chain issues in recent years, I think we've all seen how that can actually happen. Yeah, I can relate to that on a local level too. So speaking of those logistical hiccups, as I mentioned, you know, my home base for my job is out at the Iowa City landfill, and we get calls or you know get contacted from trucking companies I'll say every few months that either have partial or entire semi loads of spoiled food that they need to uh, dispose of and I know that's it's shocking um, I see I see your expression Sarah absolutely so you know the truck and we also get asked well why does this happen so there's a lot of things. If we think of how far our food travels, there's a lot of opportunities for things to go wrong. It could be the truck pulls up at the warehouse and the temperature gauge is slightly off, deeming the food unsafe or spoiled. It could be other transportation delays, an accident, a whole number of things that can cause uh, issues logistically, which result in that food waste. Usually what we see at the landfill, you know, in terms of what types of food is within the categories of meat, or dairy, just because obviously there's a higher risk of those being spoiled, but we do occasionally see loads of produce and things like that as well. Uh, pretty shocking actually when you see it at that large of scale at the landfill. Um, you know, in terms of how we can assist these different trucking companies, some loads that come out we're able to assist if it's not free flowing liquid like milk. Um, 
in cases where it is liquid, we can't take it because we're a solid waste only landfill, but uh, oftentimes in those situations, we can help find a place that either can uh, compost or dispose of whatever they have in their truckload. Well, I, maybe it's the hot, hot day, but I just don't like even imagining an entire truckload of spoiled milk. Yes, that is so, <laughs> that's so interesting. That's something you deal with. I would have never guessed. But, you know, I guess it really goes to what we're talking about, like the whole food system, right? And talking about food systems can feel really abstract. We don't always picture the trucks getting it here or there or the logistical hurdles. But when you really get right down to it, talking about a food system or thinking about how to build a better food system is really about very basic questions like this. How does your food get to where you are and who else benefits from this purchase? You know, one of the other ways that local foods contribute to resilience is by keeping dollars circulating in the local economy. The dollars you spend to support a local grower may then, in turn, they spend those dollars locally themselves or maybe even pay local workers to help on the farm. And that just multiplies the benefits like that bundling we were talking about. You know, a really robust food system doesn't just have local growers, but also has a number of value-added operations as well, like meat lockers and food entrepreneurs. Sometimes this gets referred to as the food shed, which I like a lot. Like, it's sort of like a watershed, all of these things flowing together, right? You know, and a great example of something in the local food shed is Old Capital Foods, which is a local company here in Iowa City that purchases organic soybeans, from local growers here in Iowa that they use to make tofu, and then they sell that tofu in area grocery stores. That network of local relationships at multiple levels means those farms and jobs are just a little more insulated from outside impacts. It's the multiple local layers that makes the system robust. You know, and for individuals, supporting that can take the form of participating in local foods in a combination of ways. It's that bundle again, like buying local produce at the farmer's market and then asking for it at the supermarket as well, or combining a CSA share with a little garden plot and visiting restaurants that buy local produce. All those layers add up to resilience. Wow, it really, it really does. Yeah, and a great example of a couple of different local food resources, the CSA and the garden, you know. Uh, you have a community garden plot, don't you, Sarah? I do, I do, actually. I'm using my community garden plot this year to try growing those melons that I love so much. And I also have some potted vegetables and herbs on my deck, just like you, Jane. I do, I do. I have too many tomato plants right now, unfortunately. Is there ever too many tomato plants though? Uh, the um, answer is yes, and we all have them. <laughs> it's true, it's true. I think that's potentially another Iowa thing, you know? Um, now that reminds me too, Sarah, uh, now would be a great time to mention some of the other resources that can help our residents tap into local foods, whether it's growing things themselves or supporting local growers by purchasing from them in such a manner as, for example, a CSA, as Sarah was talking about. Um, we've already mentioned Field to Family, which has resources to help you find local sources um, of whether it's you know vegetables, fruits, eggs, CSA bundles, you name it. You know, Field to Family also runs an online farmer's market that lets you place an order midweek and then you go and pick it up. 
which is convenient for you and also offers some great efficiencies for the growers. It gets back to what I was saying earlier about how a rainy day can impact what a grower takes home at the end of the market. Well, if you've already made the purchase in advance, that helps insulate them a little. And, you know, of course, there's still good reason to go to Iowa City's own farmer's market on Saturdays down in the Chauncey Swan uh, parking ramp. And that's that it not only supports local growers, um, it also serves as a low barrier business incubator. So people who are trying out business ideas, you know, you'd be surprised at how many of them get started at the farmer's market. And I would say even above all that, what I really love about a good farmer's market is the way it helps build community. You know, it's always fun to run into someone you know at the market and catch up. And that's something else we talk about a lot related to resilience. The more connected people are to one another locally, the better positioned we all are to support one another when disruptions happen. Right, right. And speaking of networks of support, there's also Grow Johnson County, which I believe we mentioned earlier. And then the Global Food Project is another one locally. Both support local growers and also increasing access to local food. I have to say though, Sarah, they're really, you know, we're, we're scratching the surface here today, but they're really the experts in terms of this topic and they're great to reach out to you with questions. So beyond this conversation today, um, what Sarah and I will do is everyone that's participating that registered for this talk today, uh, we'll be sending links out to all of you with information, you know, the direct links for Global Food Project, Grow Johnson County, Fields of Family, et cetera. So if you do have further questions, you can reach out to them directly. And of course, that email will be coming from us. So if you have any other questions for us as well, then you've got our contact information too. Um, but before, before we wrap up today, Sarah, I do want to open up the Q&A one more time. Um, I see we've had a few other comments come in as well, so we can address, the, address those. But if you do have other questions, other comments, please feel free to write those into the chat or the Q&A box. And uh, what do we say, Sarah? Do you want to read them aloud and we'll get them answered? Yeah, that sounds great. And you know, while people are entering their questions right now into the Q&A box, I think another resource we really want to raise up and mention is Backyard Abundance, which I know earlier in the chat, um, Ursula had mentioned teaching people to garden. Well, Backyard Abundance has all kinds of classes that help people do that. You know, and one of the things we know if you look at garden participation is the further away someone lives from their garden, the less likely they are to visit it frequently. I know you can look at all the weeds in my garden plot to attest to that. So resources that really help people grow things where they're at, um, the way Backyard Abundance does is just key in getting people involved in growing their own local foods. Definitely. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Sarah, I'm seeing, I'm in the Q&A right now. Uh, Ursula had another great comment. Resilience and self-resilience are key in gardening. Definitely. And then another one here too, 80% of our land in Iowa is dedicated to agriculture, yet we import 90% of the food we eat. Due to soil over nutrification, we will only be able to support about 41% of our crops by 2050. We need to find more sustainable farming practices. Yep. Yeah. And fortunately, I think there's a lot of discussion of that. What we need to be doing is pairing discussion with action, right? Which we're always trying to do. So yeah. Thank you, Ursula. That was a great point. Yeah. Okay, and then I see one more here too, Sarah, uh, a comment. I also think that moving local policies so they don't go after lawn gardens to favor the grass lawns. Am I understanding that correctly? 
I mean, policies needed to be more supportive of yard gardening. Sure, sure. Okay. Yeah. You know, actually, we don't have a lot of regulations that prevent people necessarily from growing things in the yard. I know this was something I learned a lot about last month when uh, Nomo May came up and we were hoping to move something forward with it in Iowa City. You know, long story short, it looks like we will be able to uh, make those ordinance changes in time, hopefully, for us to do it next year. But as part of that discussion, we saw um, some concerns coming up about Iowa City's regulations saying that, you know, um, the regulations prohibit you from having, for example, peonies in your yard, that the only thing that's allowed is turf grass. And that's actually not true. Um, you can grow what you'd like in your yard. It just has to be maintained. And I think it's also important to say that um, all of the yard regulations are, they're triggered by complaints, which is funny. So it's not like city employees are driving around looking at people's yards and saying, we like that, we don't like that. It's uh, really all driven by um, people passing by saying, oh, that yard looks like it's overgrown and then calling in a complaint. Um, and then the city is obligated to follow up on that complaint um, to see whether it's violating the ordinances or not. So, you know, one of the things that I often recommend um, and do myself is if you're doing something different in your yard, talk to your neighbors about it. You know, not only will that help you potentially avoid those kinds of complaint based calls that may just be simple misunderstanding, like people may not understand that, you know, the tomato plant isn't a weed. Um, you'd be surprised at how many people can't identify things like that. Um, yeah. But also that goes back to that advocacy that we were talking about, you know, like when you talk to other people about what you're doing, potentially you inspire other people to do the same. Um, and you also are just creating those connections with your neighbors. You're having those kinds of conversations where you know who lives next door and they know you. And so that in an emergency like the derecho, it's going to be that much easier to reach out to your neighbor and say, hey, are you okay? After a big event blows through. Yeah, that's yeah. great. I see uh, another comment. Could the city create city supported lawn gardening signs for people to put up? We would certainly love to. Yeah. Yeah. Perfect. Okay. Well, I think we've covered most of what's been in the Q&A and chat. Well, thank you everybody for your questions and comments there. Uh, a lot of food for thought there, Sarah. Yeah, <laughs> I had to throw in a pun as you did earlier. So, uh, well, you know, we've reached about a half an hour. We're a little bit shorter than some speaking ofs, but short and sweet. I think that is completely fine. Um, so like we said, we will be sending out our links and uh, with access to this recording as well. So if you want to share this with anyone or if you want to watch it again, you'll have access to that. Um, you know, the groups that we've mentioned, the Fields of Family, Global Food Project, Grow Johnson County, etc. Uh, another great thing with them is, you know, if you're interested in this topic, you can certainly get involved. A lot of these organizations have great volunteer opportunities, which you know not only helps out a really great local project and local organization, but you know you're learning and getting involved in the system as well. That's true, and it's one more thing that contributes to resilience. Which who knew? It's like we said we were going to talk about local foods, but it was really a Trojan horse for talking about resilience. Who knew? <laughs> Well, you know, Jane, we've ended these last few discussions with a fun fact. I feel like it's become a bit of a tradition. Do you want to do it again? I have a little historical tidbit, oddly enough, that I could share related to all this. Oh, my goodness. You know, I love those. Let's hear it. So, you know, a few weeks ago, you and I were talking about Alexander von Humboldt, who was a very famous scientist, even though most people haven't heard of him now. 
He was the Einstein of the 1700s and arguably the first scientist to talk about the possibility of human-caused climate change. So don't ever let anybody tell you that climate change is a new idea. Von Humboldt was exploring it in the 1700s. It's as old as our country. He also invented the field of ecology, writing about how natural systems are connected. And among other things he did, he inspired Charles Darwin to travel to South America and Thomas Jefferson to launch the Lewis and Clark expedition. And he also wrote about food practices that he himself observed in South America and how colonialism caused growers to abandon the mix of traditional crops that they had grown previously and grow instead just one cash crop to send overseas, which negatively impacted the food systems. The same way von Humboldt observed that colonialism encouraged clearing forests to send the timber abroad in a way that he thought might someday impact climate systems. So there you go, ecology, local foods, climate change, all of these concepts have been tied up together right from the beginning. Von Humboldt was a true systems thinker. Wow. Oh my goodness. He really was. I always learn something totally just different than what I thought I would learn in these conversations. So thank you, Sarah, for sharing that. That's great. Um, And thank you to all of our attendees today for joining us for another Speaking of. Always great to see you. Absolutely. Thanks, everyone. And we're looking forward to our next Speaking of discussion, which is going to take back or take place on July 18th. We're back to Mondays and we're back to doing them every month. Um, I think we're going to be talking about summer energy usage and the grid. Yeah, yeah, I believe we are. So uh, we'd love to have y'all again with us next month. In the meantime, have a wonderful day and happy summer. Have a good day, everyone.